with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew right in front of you there. Uh, Open your Bibles with me to the book of Leviticus. Today we are in Leviticus, third book of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 19, as we have sung about love, uh, Christians oftentimes are accused of being those who uh, have hate towards others. But in reality, ours is truly a a religion, a, a faith of love. Because we follow a book, we read a book, we study a book, we believe in a book that really is a love story. The entire Bible is a love story. You can sum it up in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love story. It's a rescue story of God pursues us even in our sin and God saves us and sanctifies us to himself. The Bible is also filled with, with stories and with instructions about love. Some say, okay, you know, the, perhaps the Song of Solomon, right? You know, that, that whole thing's a, a love poem. If you've read that, familiar with that. Or maybe you think of the story of Ruth and Boaz in the Old Testament story of love or the teachings as Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 sometimes known as the love chapter or or all of the writings of John John's gospel, John's letters all filled with the teaching of love if we think about love in the Bible and we think about books that and chapters that, uh, that uh, we associate with love We don't necessarily think of the book of Leviticus, do we? As we have gone through this book over the last several months, we've seen a lot of bloody things and sacrifices, a lot of what we would consider to be strange teachings and and diets and, and laws and instructions. And we don't necessarily think of Leviticus as a book of love. And in fact, it's a book of laws, right? Two two different things. But our sermon title today is The Law of Love because Leviticus, as we're going to see, has much to say on the subject. Our sermon series is entitled Holy, 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 and we're going to see today there is a firm connection, a strong connection between holiness and between love. God's love for sinners through atonement is on display, and now we're going to see His love is to be to and through his people in fact you and I should demonstrate a holy love for God by reflecting his holy love to people demonstrate a holy love for God by reflecting a holy love to people and in this we see a call to action love is a holy action that we are called to be involved in I invite you, if you're able this morning, would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of God's holy word. I'll be reading from Leviticus chapter 19, starting at verse 1. These words written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
Every one of you shall reverence his father and his mother, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Now when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense, it will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not fare falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, you may, be sure, you may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we have just seen in these verses of Scripture, we are called to holiness a holiness that reflects you to this world. Father, we are to have a better grasp, a better understanding of what it means to be holy. And we cannot be holy without love. A love for you and a love for others. Father, may you, through this text of Scripture today, challenge us, may you change us, so that we would truly, Lord, love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would indeed love our neighbors as ourselves. God, teach us what that means, and Holy Spirit, empower us. Give us the freedom and the liberty to truly love as we have been loved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've come to this section of Leviticus that we call the Holiness Code. Laws about what it means to be holy, chapters 18 through 20. Chapter 18, we saw last week, had to deal with prohibitions. The thou shalt not. Typically, when we think of the holiness of God, we think of living a holy life. We, We always think of it or often think of it in those negative terms, the things that we should not do. If you want to be holy, you can't do these things. But chapter 19 today shows us that there are holy practices, things that we are called to do. So holiness is more than just what you can't or shouldn't do, but holiness is also about the things that you should do, that you ought to do. And this chapter teaches us that 
Then finally, chapter 20, we see the penalties. What are the penalties involved in God's people in the Old Testament for breaking these commandments? We made mention last week, even before we get into holiness, we see the placement of it in the book of Leviticus. The first 17 chapters had to deal with the idea of atonement. That as sinners, how do we approach a holy God? We, we cannot unless God in His grace provides a means of atonement through which our guilt is paid for and through which we then are made clean or made right with Him and therefore we have access to His presence. Once we have entered into a relationship with God, then comes the requirements to live a holy life that reflects God's holy love. Because God has loved us, and because God is holy, part of what it means to be holy is to truly love. Because God is love. So we are called to love God, we are called to love others. And this chapter shows us many practical ways in which that was commanded in the Old Testament, but these principles, while they were commanded then, fulfilled in Christ, these principles, these moral laws, really carry over into the New Testament, the New Covenant, and are relative for us, valid for us, even today. First thing we see, the first eight verses of this chapter, is that we are called to love God with your worship. With your worship. You're called to worship Him and love Him through your worship. Jesus was asked in the New Testament, what is the greatest commandment? His response Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God in your totality with everything you have. With all of your being, love God. And that's what we see depicted for us in these first, I believe, eight verses here. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses. Again, we have a God who speaks to his people, a God who's not silent. We don't have to, to guess or speculate or wonder who God is or what God is like. God speaks to us clearly, and God's word is recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. He says, Speak to all of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Say to them, You shall be holy. That's the command. That's the, that's the theme of this entire chapter. Be holy. Why are we called to be holy? He says, For I, the Lord your God, am holy. God has saved us and drawn us into a relationship with Himself, and because God is holy, we are now called and commanded to be holy also. Holiness is emphasized in this text. In, in, the, in the original Hebrew language, literally it says, Holy you shall be, for holy I am. So God is holy. And what does that mean? It means God is, he is pure. He is righteous. He is undefiled. Morally right. Without sin. With, with, without evil. Pure. But holiness also carries with it the, the idea, the connotation of being different. Being distinct. God is unique. There is, there is nothing like God in all of existence. And God says, I am holy. Recognize my holiness. And because you have a relationship now with me by my grace, because you are now saved by faith, you also, as my people, not only recognize my holiness, but reflect 
my holiness. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 we read that God is holy, holy, holy. The three times holy, the emphasis there. God is holy and that carries over also into the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. Peter literally quotes this same passage. Be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Christians, new covenant people, we are called to be holy as God is holy. But it's also important to understand we are not holy by keeping the laws. We strive to keep the laws because we are holy. Atonement comes first, then the holiness code. Peter talks about in chapter 1 being born again first then speaks of you see what I'm saying here the outcome the, the, the result of your salvation then is we are called because we are saved through a relationship with God in Jesus Christ because we are saved we are to live like it live like godly saved people because we are saved by God be holy for I am holy and then he, he mentions several commandments here and in fact we see all of the ten commandments in some way I believe uh, demonstrated in this chapter what it means to love God and love people it's been said before the ten commandments that have two separate tables on them first four laws demonstrate our relationship with God and, and the second six laws the second table demonstrates then our relationship with others but yet they're tied together tightly. I hope we see that in this chapter as well. It talks about obedience, reverencing our, our mother and our father, and keeping the Sabbaths. Obedience to God is, is one of the ways in which we demonstrate holiness, demonstrate our, our worship, our love for God through obedience in family and in faith, through offerings. Again, these peace offerings, we've talked about them already. It demonstrates that a person through atonement through the blood sacrifice, through the substitution, now that the person is forgiven, then they offer their peace offerings, which demonstrates that now I've got peace with God. Once there was hostility, once there was separation, but now through atonement, now through faith, now through a blood sacrifice for us now, Jesus Christ, through his atonement, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace offerings represent that. But yet offerings, giving to God of ourselves, giving to God of our, our lives a living sacrifice. We are offering to God everything we have. God has placed it in our hands. And we keep our hands open, palms up, because we say, God, you placed this into my hands as a steward. God, at any time you have the right to take back from me what you have given to me. It's not mine. I don't keep it with clenched fists. I offer it, I offer myself to you, God. We worship God through our offerings, through our obedience. We demonstrate a love for God, a holy love for God in our worship. We come to God as always on his terms. And that's what these sacrifices teach us. Secondly, we shift gears to not loving God, but loving others. Because you can't do one without the other. And so he, he's speaking about holiness, and we tend to think of, of holiness in terms of, of spiritual terms, right? 
But he says it's more than just spiritual, it's also social. It's not just supernatural things. It's, it's the natural. It's the day-to-day living. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he said, is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And how do we do that? Well, verses 9 and 10 teach us to love others with our wealth, our blessings. God has blessed us. If you've been blessed financially, the call then is to be a blessing financially. In whatever way God has blessed you. God blesses you, whether it's financially or other means, God blesses you to be a blessing, to be a conduit of his blessing to others. And that's one way, through, through our wealth. He talks about not reaping the harvest of your land to the very corners of your field, trying to, trying to, to reap every last little grain of wheat or every last little kernel of corn that you could possibly reap. He says, no, make your pass and go through. And whatever you harvest is yours, whatever is left, don't go back again and seek to finish the job, but leave what's left there, he says, for the poor, the less fortunate, for the stranger, for the needy. We say, yeah, that, that, that's well and good for a, an agrarian culture like ancient Israel was. You know, what about, you live in the city, you know, I don't... I don't have a field. <laughs> you know, I, I may have a garden. I'm, I may be growing a couple of tomato plants, you know, but, you know, if, if, I, if I pick every single tomato and don't leave any there for poor people, am I violating this law? No. The intent and, and, and the meaning and, the, and the, the purpose of this law is to have generosity, a concern for the needy a concern for those who are doing without. And if God has given to you the means by which to help others and you withhold that, that's sin. Now, we always wrestle and, and, and wrangle with, you know, do you have to give to every single person who's out there on the street corner asking for money? And, and there, there's wisdom in, 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 in how you deal with that. But ultimately, it's between you and the Lord and between them and the Lord. And there's certainly other avenues through which in our community you can give. You can give to the pregnancy center. You can give to the homeless shelter. Give to community services. There's all kinds of ways in which you can fulfill this law. Loving others with your wealth. The financial blessings God has given to you. It's a matter of generosity. It's also a matter of community. It's a matter of understanding. God has placed me in this community. And there are others around me who may may have needs. And I've got, through God's grace, the ability to help meet those needs. And to withhold that, then, is sin. At the end of our Lord's Supper today, we're going to take up a benevolence offering. We do that for church members who have financial needs that, that may arise from time to time. And, and throughout the years, the, some of our church members have, have depended upon that. And it's a way to discreetly help meet those needs. And we'll have the opportunity to contribute to that. I believe that's a way of loving others with your wealth. And I believe it's fulfilling this, of not gleaning your harvest to the very edge of your field. You are not keeping every single penny for yourself, your selfishness, selflessly giving to others.
So love others with your wealth. And notice he says at the end of verse 10, I am the Lord your God. That's a phrase, that's a refrain that's repeated several times in this chapter. In fact, I believe 16 times God says, I am the Lord. Why do you think he says it 16 times? It's because there's an emphasis. There is a, a huge, a repetitive emphasis, a tremendous emphasis on this that he is the Lord. He says it over and over again to kind of get it through our thick skulls, I believe, that remember, he's God and you're not. And when it comes to relating with people in your community, it comes to relating with your neighbors, relating with fellow church members, remember, first of all, that he is the Lord. It's a matter of authority in this. It's also a matter of intimacy. I am the Lord, your God. He says, remember, I am the Lord. You're not. I have brought you into an intimate relationship with me by my grace. Through atonement, you now belong to me. You need to live like it. God loves us. Therefore, we are called to be like God and love others. He is holy and he loves. Therefore, we are called to be holy and we are called to love. He is the Lord, our God. Thirdly, love others with your words. With your words, Jesus said in the New Testament that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, meaning you know, what you eat. It's what comes out of the man because it comes out of the heart. Our words reveal the, the, the nature of what's going on on the inside. We are called to love others with our words. Verse 11 through 16 has as many ways in which we can fulfill that. Not to steal or deal falsely or lie to one another. Not swear falsely by God's name. Profane the name of the Lord your God. We're seeing already these, these commandments. No other God before him. No graven images. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your father and your mother. Don't steal. I mean, we're seeing all of, of, of the law, what the, they call it the Decalogue, the ten words. All of this is distilled into this chapter. Loving God, loving others, and that's what it means to be holy. It's not just some supernatural, some sort of uh, a, a mystical experience. It's about living it out in the day-to-day -day life. It's about your everyday occurrence. It's about your dealings with other people. You demonstrate holiness in the way you treat people. It means you can't say, I, oh, how I love Jesus on Sunday and then go out on Monday and treat people like dirt. These two things don't line up. And this chapter shows that's what holiness is about. True holiness is loving God and loving each other. And how do we do that? With our wealth, with our, our words. Don't use religion to cheat people, swearing falsely in God's name. He goes on, verse 12, and, or verse 13, Not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man, not to remain with you all night till morning. They would have day laborers. You hire somebody to come to your house and fix something, and that person's living day to day, living check to check. You say, hey, come to my house and fix this. They come to your house and fix it. And then you say, you know what, I'll pay you tomorrow. In hopes that, that you know, maybe they would forget or maybe something would come up or they come back tomorrow and suddenly you're out of town tomorrow. And that convenient, right? You know. He says, no, you pay somebody what they've earned. You pay them what they deserve. You don't withhold from somebody when you've promised to give something. Verse 14, don't curse a deaf man. What, he can't hear you if you're cursing, you know. 
or place a stumbling block in front of the blind. He, he doesn't know any better. In other words, don't take advantage of people. Don't take advantage of, of weaker people, of, of those who don't know better or those who, who have no idea and, and rip people off. Literally, don't curse a deaf man or don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But metaphorically, don't use your power to abuse others. All ways in which words can even fall into this category. Verse 15, no injustice and judgment. Don't be partial either to the poor or to the great. You know, typically we think justice being perverted when, when we show partiality to, to the wealthy or the powerful. You can also pervert justice by saying, you know, I don't like rich people. They think they can get away with anything. And so, you know what, if I'm on a jury and there's a rich person on trial, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rule against them. I don't like people who have everything in life. You know, it's about time the, 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 the have-nots have a little bit. Well, if it's justice, maybe sometimes you rule in favor of the wealthy versus the poor. The idea that justice is meant to be blind. You know, Lady Justice, the, the image of the lady with the, the scales, right? And you're, you're, you're weighing out which one is right, which one's wrong. There's a, there's a sword in one hand to execute justice, and there's a blindfold. I mean, you're not supposed to be judging with favoritism. One way or the other, you let actions stand as they are Verse 16, don't go about as a slanderer among your people, not to act against the life of your neighbor. You know why? Because slander is character assassination. Through your words, you're trying to assassinate someone's character, someone's reputation. You are slandering them, speaking falsely about them in an effort to try to execute them, maybe not physically, but socially. You love others with your words by not slandering them. And then he says also here, I am the Lord. Then we come to the fourth thing, verse 17 and 18. Love others with your willingness. With your willingness. And I believe of, of all of these things and all these ways to love others, this could be one of the most difficult because it requires a tremendous amount of grace. But to those who have received of grace, we will be more likely to dispense of grace. A lack of showing others grace reveals either a lack of understanding God's grace or a lack of possessing God's grace. The way you treat people is a reflection upon what you believe about God's grace towards you. And we see that, I think, in verse 17 and 18, with your willingness. Because he says in verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. You may not be, be acting out on your hatred, but you don't even have hatred in your heart. Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you are guilty of murder. I've never taken someone's life, but if you've hated someone, you've violated this law, this commandment, the nature of the law. Maybe not the letter, but the intent of the law. Jesus amplifies this for us. 
not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, you may surely reprove your neighbor. There are times we are called to reprove others. Reprove is to correct. There are times we are called to reprove. Somebody say, well, you know, judge not. The uh, Bible says judge not. But if you keep reading, it says, lest you be judged, for in the same manner that you judge, you will be judged in that same manner. So don't condemn somebody of being guilty when you yourself are guilty of the same exact thing. Jesus says, you know, take the speck out of your eye first, or the log out of your eye first, and then you may take the speck out of your brother's eye. You, you, you don't just leave them in their sin and then they're wrong. Right. He's without sin, cast the first stone, right? Yes. However, we are called by the Lord, you shall surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. There is a danger, one of being very judgmental, very harsh, very critical in your treatment, in your reproof. If you're not careful, we can have a, a very much a, a holier-than-thou sentiment behind what we are doing and our, our motives and, and our words and the way we treat them. And as Jacob read for us in Galatians 6, that we are, we are called to, to confront others, but be careful not to fall into that sin as well either become guilty of doing what they're doing, one, or two, become very judgmental and very harsh and super critical, lacking grace. Being mindful that we too are sinners as we confront sin in the lives of others. It's cautious. Verse 18, Not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Wow, that's hard. If we're being honest here today, which, you know, we're at church, supposed to be honest, right? Supposed to be honest everywhere. You know, that's a, that's a trick question. But if we're honest, how hard is that? Someone slanders you, you know what? I'm going to slander them right back. I'll show them. You know, you, you steal from me, I'll, I'll steal from you. You know, you, you, you speak ill of me, I'll, I'll speak ill of you. And, and human nature is for us to take vengeance. Why? Because we want to execute justice. Our moral code, so to speak, has been violated, and so therefore we need to do something about that. What that demonstrates is a lack of faith and trust in God. Either God doesn't see what that person did to me, or God doesn't care what that person did to me. God's not going to do anything to that person for what they did to me. Therefore, I've got to take matters in my own hands, and I need to exact vengeance upon them. You're placing yourself in the position of God when you execute vengeance yourself. When the Lord says, vengeance is mine. And so we trust God in this. There, there are times to stand up for ourselves. There are times to defend ourselves, surely, but we never have the right to enact vengeance upon somebody to make them pay for what they did to me. We take it way past simply defending ourselves or speaking the truth when we seek to hurt others the way they have hurt us and not bear any grudge. Wow, that's hard. Somebody hurts us. Now there's a difference between forgiving and forgetting we're called to forgive and somebody says well you know if you if you don't forget then how can you truly forgive now you know 
What's the old saying? You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, so to speak. You know, you can be taken advantage of by individuals if you don't put yourself in a position to be to be cautious, be careful. So we are called to forgive. We are called to demonstrate grace because God has demonstrated grace to us. And so we love our neighbors as ourselves because we have received of grace and therefore we want others to receive of grace. We want to, as Jesus said in the golden rule, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Would you want somebody to hold grudges against you? No, you want forgiveness, right? Then give forgiveness. You don't want anybody to slander you, so don't slander them back. If you've been forgiven by God, you understand what it means to be in the wrong and yet forgiven. If you have lived that and experienced that yourself, you are much more likely then to forgive others who have wronged you and extend and show grace to them as well. I think it has to do with understanding the holiness of God, our sinfulness, God's gracious atonement, and our appreciation for God's atonement that then leads to action. Atonement, appreciation, action. And part of that is forgiving others, not bearing grudges, loving our neighbors as ourselves because He is the Lord. Come to verses 19 through 25 and we see a lot of what looks like assorted commands that don't fit together. But I would call this love God with your walk with your walk. In other words, we are called to be distinct. We are called to be culturally distinct, spiritually distinct. The way we walk ought to be different than the way that lost people walk. We should walk like Jesus walked. Live like Jesus lived. A holy Christian walk. We do that by honoring God's intended created order. God's intended order in creation. Verse 19, Keep my statutes, not breed together two kinds of your cattle, not sow your field with two kinds of seed. In other words, honoring God's created order, not mixing together things that God does not intend to be mixed. Looking at what God has created, for example, male and female. No confusion, no blurring the lines there, no, no crossing of that. There's clearly one, there's clearly another. Honoring God's created order. In an agrarian culture like they lived in, that was one way for them to remain distinct is to remind themselves of the distinction in God's created order. It's a daily, as you're, you're sowing your field every day, you're reminding yourself, God is holy, I'm to be holy I'm not to live like the other nations. I am to live the way God intends for me to live. It's a daily, day after day, moment after moment reminder. So I'm not breeding cattle. I'm not sowing seeds. But what are we doing to remind ourselves we are called to be different than the world around us? Remember that God is the creator and honor his order in creation. Then we see this, this, this law about not mixing a, a garment of two, two different kinds of materials. And, 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 and opponents and critics of Christianity will often point this one out as, as a way to somehow like it's their, their, their mic drop of saying, well, you're, you're wearing clothes with mixed clothing. 
you're, you're clearly saying that law don't matter anymore, but you're saying this one does. We talked about that last week, especially dealing with the subject of homosexuality is one. But what does it mean, a garment with mixed fabrics? You know who in that culture wore garments of mixed fabrics? The priests. So what it's saying is that the priests aren't sinners when they wear their garments. It's saying, you, when you seek to try to become something you are not, trying to take upon yourself the mantle of a priest when God has not called you as a priest, you are violating God's boundaries. What he's saying to those people in that culture is that certain people, Aaron's descendants, Aaron's sons, were called to be priests. And if you are not one of Aaron's sons, don't try to pretend like you are one. Don't try to be something that you're not. Don't try to elevate your status spiritually when God has not called you to do that. the garments of spiritual service. Do what God has called you to do. And don't lie and say you're something that you're not. Distinctions. Then we see this, this law, verses 20 through 22, about a man who has a, has a female slave. And the way this is worded is kind of confusing, but what's going on really here is this man has a slave. And there's a lot of reasons why people would have slaves in that culture. Typically we think of slavery in terms of, you know, the United States, the South, and, and that. But slavery in that culture and really around the world is, is very different in a lot of ways than what we think of that. You know, a person could enter into slavery because of poverty. They had no means by which to put food on the table, and so they enslaved themselves to someone and say, I will be your servant so long as you will put food on the table and clothing on my back and a shelter over my head. I'll, I'll, I'll be your servant. And so we see a situation where this woman who is a female slave, she, she is promised to another. Arranged marriages were common in that culture as they are in cultures around the world even today. And so an arranged marriage was set up. This man's female slave was going to marry this other fellow over here. However, she falls in love with another guy. And it says in this, they lie together. It's discovered and so the guy that she is going to be arranged to says, now wait a minute, she's been violated. I'm not going to marry her now. She's not his wife. She's not betrothed him yet, so the death penalty is not enacted. But they have sinned. They've had sex outside of marriage. His actions has meant that this other fella who was supposed to marry this woman, now he, he's, he's done that guy wrong. The, the fellow who owns the slave was going to receive a dowry for marrying this slave off. Now he doesn't receive his financial gain. And so in this one action, there are so many levels of sin in this. They've sinned against their neighbor. They've sinned against God. So what do you do in this? Atonement has to be made. A sacrifice has to be made. Sacrifice in accordance to what God has prescribed. And so when you wrong others, these wrongs are to be made right in whatever way is culturally and spiritually appropriate. You ask God's forgiveness, you repent of this sin, you seek the forgiveness of those whom you have wronged. You acknowledge your guilt. That's part of your Christian walk. 
Acknowledge when you sin against God, you repent. When you sin against others, you repent. You ask forgiveness. You seek forgiveness. That's part of what makes us distinct from the world. We acknowledge our guilt. We seek God's forgiveness. We seek forgiveness from others. Then it moves into verse 23, this this text about when you enter the land, the holy land, and you plant your trees that bear fruit, for three years that fruit's forbidden. It's not to be eaten. I say, why is that? Well, there might be agricultural means or, or whatever, but I think what it's saying is this. For three years, literally that fruit is uncircumcised. It's off limits for three years. In the fourth year, then, the fruit comes in. That fruit, he says, is an offering of praise to the Lord. God gets the first fruits. God gets the best. For three years, the fruit's coming in, but it's not the best. But, man, that fourth year, when that fruit comes in, man, that fruit's going to be really good, and that ain't yours, it's God's. God gets the best. God doesn't get secondhand stuff. God doesn't get your yard sale junk that you don't want no more. Like, yeah, I'll just give it to God. No, God deserves your very, very best. The fruit in that fourth year would have been the best. It belongs to God first. Then the fifth year, it belongs to you. You may eat of it. Part of your walk is understanding that God deserves the very best in all that I do. I don't take what belongs to the Lord. I give my best to God in every aspect of my life. Verse 26 through 31, love God with your warfare. A lot of practices are mentioned here in these verses that have to deal, I believe, with with pagan worship, with occult practices, satanic, demonic, religious activities. And of course, as believers, as followers of God, we are not to be involved in these kind of things. Verse 26, not anything with blood in it. Leviticus talks about that over and over again. See, not practice divination or soothsaying, you know, really trying to, 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 to figure out the, the, the future, fortune-telling, so to speak, tarot cards, things of that nature, because, why? because God knows the future. And if God wants you to know the future, God will tell you the future. That's right. If God ain't telling you the future, then you don't need to know the future. So don't turn to other spiritual, religious means by which to try to predict the future. Number one, they're phony. And number two, if they do know anything, it's demonic and you should not be involved in that kind of thing. The context of that fits with verse 27. Not rounding off the side of the growth of your heads, no harm the edges of your beards. I mean, you can't wear goatees. No, it's not what it's saying. In that context, in that culture, in those false pagan religions, that was one of the ways their priests identified themselves by the certain way they wore their hair, the certain way they wore their beards. So don't look like and identify with those who worship other gods. Don't live a lifestyle where people wonder, I wonder if they're a Christian or not. Look at the way they're dressed. Look at what they're promoting. Look at what they're listening to. Are they Christian or not? It should be clear. It should be evident in the way we live that other people ought to identify us as Christians and not as lost people. It's part of our warfare, our spiritual warfare, that we are fighting the enemy, we are resisting temptation, and we are living a holy life before others. 
same context, verse 28, not making any cuts in your body for the dead, some sort of practices where they are, are worshiping their ancestors or seeking answers from the dead, necromancy, so to speak. If I cut myself a certain way, then the, the spirits of the dead will speak to me and reveal to me truths. No, that's off limits. Same context, verse 28, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. People read that and say, oh man, you know, I was in the Navy and got a tattoo and I sinned against God. Is that what that means? No. Did you do that in a way to worship some sort of pagan god? No, I, I, I just got mom written on my arm, you know. You did that to honor your mother. You know, that's not necessarily sin. The question we need to ask is not, you know, are tattoos sin or not? We have to ask, to what degree should we do this? Should we not do this? A great deal of wisdom and discernment ought to go into this. You know, to what degree am I, am I seeking to, to mar and disfigure what God has created? Or what degree am I, am I seeking to, to honor God or display love towards my Father in Heaven or, or my family on earth? I mean, there's, there's a great deal of discernment to be involved in this, but I don't think it's necessarily saying every tattoo is sin because the context is not saying that. It's a context of pagan occult worship practices. In that context, No means no 666, no pentagrams, no that kind of markings of tattoos on your body. You get a cross, I mean, that's a different story. Now, should you do that? You know, that's up for debate, discussion. But not necessarily sin in and of itself because that is not the context of what this verse is saying. He goes on, verse 29, don't profane your daughter by making her a harlot, uh, sending her off to some other religion to serve as a temple prostitute obviously that's bad the land will fall into harlotry the land will become full of lewdness keep my sabbaths revere my sanctuary that means you recognize god is the god of all time and space the sabbath day and the calendar god is the god of of, of, of time the sanctuary god's dwelling place god is the god uh, of space and remember, revere God's sanctuary. That's like saying, you know, God's dwelling place was in the sanctuary, it was in the tabernacle. God was literally their neighbor. They say, well, we don't have a tabernacle now. We don't have a temple now. We are the temple. Amen. God is more than just your neighbor. God resides within your heart if you are a Christian. Amen. How much, if they had to revere the Lord in His space He occupied there, how much more so do we need to revere the Lord? in the way we live our lives because God is in our heart today. Verse 31, Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out. Be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. God is the authority, not other spiritual means of trying to predict the future. Speak to the dead. Things of that nature. Don't be involved in that. Opens up all kinds of doors, demonic forces that you do not want to open. Love God with your warfare. Now back to loving others. Verse 32 to 36. Love others with your witness. In other words, the way you live your life, the grace of God is on display to the world. I heard Elaine say to somebody else the other day, a young person, that your life may be the only Bible that person ever reads. 
the way you live your life. Now, we are called to witness with more than just our lives. That won't save anybody. We're called to witness with our lips. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news saves. However, the way you live ought to match up with what's coming out of your lips. Or else you're a hypocrite. So love others with your witness, the way you live and the things you say. Practice the golden rule. We see that, verse 32. Rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. You shall revere your God. Why is that? Number one, oftentimes those individuals represent authority. Parents, grandparents, pastors, teachers, wisdom, a lot of uh, wisdom and life experience, and you honor that. But also perhaps represents those again who who are needy, those who, who sometimes because they're elders can't do the things they used to do and and you don't take advantage of people in that situation. You bless them, you help them, you give them strength and not harm. Reveal your God. Verse thirty three, when a stranger resides with you in your land, do him no wrong, the stranger the outsider resides with you. He shall be to you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Why? Because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You knew what it meant to be an outcast, an outcast at one time. You lived outside of a relationship with God before. But now God has drawn you in. He's, he's, he's adopted you into his family. So the way we treat others, the way we treat outsiders, the way we treat... you know. Aliens, and you know, there's a great deal of, of, of debate. I'm not talking about little green men. <laughs> I'm talking about people from other countries, other nations coming to the United States. Great deal of debate of what we do and the, the right way and the wrong way to do that. The bottom line is we treat people that we come in contact with. We don't show discrimination because they don't look like us, they don't talk like us, they don't smell like us. Therefore, they are inferior to us. No, 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 no. If you're dealing with another human being, you're dealing with someone created in the image of God. Amen. You're dealing with an image bearer. doesn't matter what country they're from. doesn't matter what language they speak. You're dealing with a human being. Treat them with equal compassion. Treat them as you would your next-door neighbor. Treat them with grace and mercy. Why? Because God has shown you grace and mercy as well. And he says in verse 36, or verse 35, no wrong in judgment, in weights or measurement, just balances, just weights. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't try to rip people off in your, your dealings, your interactions, your financial obligations. Display integrity and be the kind of person that people can trust. Why? Because you're, you're telling them that, hey, if you will give your life to Jesus Christ, He will save you. And then the next minute, you're doing something distrustful. You're, you're, you're hedging your bets. You're not following through when you're... You're not keeping your word. You're being underhanded. You're being shysty in the way you're treating them. And you're not, you're not doing things above board. But yet you're trying to tell them, hey, come to Jesus Christ like I did. He will save you like he saved me. And then you're out there living like a scoundrel. What kind of witness is that to the world? 
People need the Lord. They need to be saved. People are dying in their sin and they're going to hell unless they are born again through faith in Jesus Christ. And you're trying to vocalize that, but your lifestyle is a witness in the opposite direction. You're sending mixed signals here. Which, what is it? Let your lips and your lives equally, jointly be a witness to people of God's grace towards you, the same grace that they need in order to be saved. Final point, verse 37. We've come full circle here. Love God with your wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness. I needed to find another W word. And that fits. Wholeheartedness. We're back to the the greatest commandment again. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. All your soul, your mind, and your strength. Observe, God says, all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. Yeah, okay, sure, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll keep every command. No, you won't. <laughs> no, I won't. So there's a, there's, there's a problem here. God says, love me with your whole heart. Be holy, for I am holy. Love me, love your neighbor. And we can't do that. We fall woefully short. We need God's grace. We need atonement. We need a substitute. And that is who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus comes and He dies for our lack of wholeheartedness. He bears our guilt for not observing all of the statutes and all the ordinances. We can't do that, but He did. In His moral perfection, in His sinlessness, the Son of God came into this world incarnate and He kept the law in our place. His act of obedience, He did that so that His righteousness would be credited to your account if you put your faith in Him. He takes your guilt, gives you His perfection. And that transaction is made by faith, by trust, that God so loved me, He gave His only begotten Son to die in my place, so that if I believe in Him, I won't perish, I won't bear my guilt anymore, I'll be forgiven and I'll have eternal life. And because God has done that for you, then the response is, I want to love God with my whole heart. Even if I can't, even if I stumble, even if I fall along the way, I will still repent, I will still ask forgiveness, I will plead the blood of Jesus, and I will cry out for God's mercy. And if I am truly repentant and I am truly saved, my sins are forgiven. And I get a fresh start. I don't have an excuse to, well, I'm just going to go out and sin. Hey, Jesus died for that, right? Might as well just do it. It's not the attitude of a person who loves God with their whole heart. A person who loves God with their whole heart says, you know what? I stumbled. I fell. But God, forgive me. God, help me to to, to get back up and and keep me from going down that path ever again. And God, I I love you with my whole heart. And God says, "I, I know you do. You are mine. You belong to me. God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ, as atonement. He's given us. Now His Holy Spirit resides in us. Holy Spirit's a new motivation and and, and a new ability to keep God's law that you didn't have before. Because you had the flesh that says, hey, do what you want to do. And now the Holy Spirit says, hey, do what 
God wants you to do. And we now have this liberty, this freedom that we did not have before because we were bound to sin. Now we have the freedom of the Holy Spirit to strive to want to live a holy life and keep these laws. So therefore, demonstrate a holy love for God by reflecting His holy love to people. It's the Ten Commandments all distilled into one. Actually, two. Love God. Love your neighbor. We've been on a smoothie kick in our house lately. I see we're getting ready to have a new smoothie store in town, and you know that looks pretty cool. We got one of these little little mini blenders, right? And you put all the contents in it, and you push the button, and it blends it all up. And then you got you a, a nice fruit smoothie to drink, and you can put the uh, the ingredients in there, and you mix it together, and it becomes one. When I began to study this chapter and and, and try to divided up for preaching purposes my my initial plan was i'm going to i'm going to lump together all the verses to speak about loving god and i'm going to lump together all the verses speaking about loving your neighbor but then i said you know what that's really violating the intent of this text they are uh, i believe intentionally woven together in this chapter you got to start picking this verse here and this verse here and this verse here and this verse here rather than take the whole thing that's blended together like a beautiful delicious smoothie and it's all about holiness and what does it look like what does it mean to be holy it means to love god and it means to love your neighbor, and by the way, your neighbor is everyone you come into contact with, not just the people that live next door to you. Everyone you have interaction with on a day-to-day basis, even the person that, that you're talking to on the phone that, that's living across the country or, or the person you're dealing with on the Internet, on social media. It's your neighbor. Are you loving them? How are you treating that person? And the Old Testament has a lot to say on this subject. It's not just Leviticus. The Proverbs are full of, of dealing with other people the right way with your words and with your actions, how you treat people. The prophets, uh, the prophets spoke out against the, the Israelites for the way in which they treated others, treated one another, and the, the lack of justice, the lack of sensitivity in dealing with their common man and with the aliens and nations around them. Of course, you move into the New Testament. See the same thing there. In fact, we'll finish up with this. Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Of course, Romans, we think, ah, you know, it's very theological. It's very philosophical. It's very weighty. It's, 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 it's all this stuff that's kind of way up here, so to speak. Paul says this, Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19. Now, this is Paul in the book of Romans. This is, this is as Christian as Christian can get. And Paul is quoting Leviticus. Now, tell me Leviticus doesn't matter today. We don't need to worry about studying Leviticus. It's just, it's just weird. It matters. It matters. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. James even says in chapter 2, verse 8, 
He quotes again, love your neighbor as yourself. And James labels that as the royal law. Why royal? Because Jesus is king. Why royal? Because we are his royal subjects. Why royal? Because we belong to his holy kingdom here on earth. And the way we treat others is a reflection of the way he has treated us. We are called to be holy. In fact, as kingdom citizens, we can boil it down like this. Live holy and love holy. Why? For the Lord is holy. Live holy and love holy, for the Lord is holy. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. We are called to be like the Lord who is holy. He loves, therefore we love Him. We love others. What the world needs now is love Holy love. Godly, supernatural, divine love. And it's got to come from the church or it won't come at all. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you now. We do so in reverence, God. You are our creator. You are the the, the judge, the righteous one. Father, we fall short of your glory but you are the God of mercy. You are the God of grace. You have forgiven us through the blood of Jesus Christ if we would receive of that free gift. Turn from our sin and trust in our Savior. Father, I pray that this text of Scripture today has challenged us, God. Reflect upon ourselves. How are we treating people? Father, how are we living in a way that demonstrates our love for you? And Lord, may the gospel be evidence in the way we live, in the words we say, in the relationships that we cultivate. Holiness is not just something way up there. God, holiness is the day-to-day, often the mundane things of life. Lord, may we be holy and everything we do for you are holy God may your spirit move there are decisions that need to be made today I pray that they will be made salvation, rededication church membership whatever the case may be God your will be done as we enter this hymn of decision in Jesus name we pray Amen. would you stand as we have this hymn of decision